You're listening to the Start Today Podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Mike. And on this episode, we had special guest and friend, Michael Claypool. Claypool. Claypool in the house. Master storyteller. M- Mike Claypool is the uh, A, not the, I suppose there's many, paramedic supervisors for AMR um, emergency responders, EMS responders. And like Mike was saying, Mike is a fantastic storyteller. Yeah. Fantastic storyteller. I mean, he's our friend and he, um, like being an EMS supervisor isn't the motivation for bringing him on the show. Right. It was his storytelling. Right. That was the motivation. Yeah. We wanted him to talk. He could, we, we he, like listening to him talk. Yeah. He could have been a chef. And I think yeah. he would be the guy like, I want to know about his steaks because he's going to talk about how he does his steak and it's going to be super entertaining. Exactly. Actually, to be fair to Mike, he is a pretty good cook. <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah, that's he right. He does do a ton of cooking. Yeah. That's kind of his deal too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Osachuk was not with us on this episode. Not for the interview. I had to be somewhere else. Yeah. I actually don't remember. Oh, I do remember. And we had a house guest. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. How and did that go? It went great. <laughs> that's good. No, no, no. We had a really great time. Um, my wife's old roommate was staying with us for four days. So Yeah. Yeah. I was driving her. I think I was driving her to the... Oh, no. We took her out for the day while you uh, were recording that day. Yeah, and yeah. The, the next night, we took her to the airport. So I love... We having, were gone for the day. Having friends over... Especially unexpected. I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. I'm not, I don't know if they were unexpected or it not. It wasn't but super unexpected since she lives in New York, but it was It was a little bit last minute. Yeah. It was like last month minute. That's <laughs> cool, though. So anyway, we yeah. had a great day, but I was not able to be here to interview uh, Mike with you. But me and Mike had a great time, and I was a little nervous, you know, because I I always like, like to be around him at, you know, at church and at functions and stuff. Yeah. But I've never had a one-on-one. This was just sit down, quiet room, headsets on, yeah. mics on, and you got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's pressure in that. There is. And people talk about like, oh, movie magic or editing magic. Um, I don't know how to do that stuff. You don't so have what, any <laughs> editing magic is what you're saying? Not really. Other people do who are very gracious to help me. But in these cases, like, no, I have to just deal with nervousness and... Push and, through and do it. Yeah, no, that's yeah. good though. You pushed through. I've seen you push through some nervousness in interviewing. It's good. Yeah, you do well with it. You actually don't come off as. I think you feel more nervous than you appear. Yeah, because sometimes I feel like I'm about to like crawl out of my skin or something. But no, we we had a great a great interview. I mean, good. he he's such like a people person that he could really like calm and like disarm anything i feel like yeah he he's very good at that yeah Yeah. for sure and so we kind of went through his his early career how he ended up in ems him wanting to be uh, a firefighter initially and he'll get in you guys will hear you know how how the path deviated from firefighting into um being a paramedic and some early tragedies experiences on the job how that shaped and molded him how he deals with the stress of the job 
you know, even even his his sad stories are just like, dude, this guy is so interesting, like everything. Yeah. And I, and I get halfway jealous of people that are constantly dealing with high stress and maybe they because they're humble, they wouldn't think of themselves this way, but I I'm just jealous of how they handle life and handle basically handling other people's misfortunes. Yeah. Like I feel like I would I'm not jealous of that at all. <laughs> well, no, I guess maybe that's that's a, a good way to put it cuz I put myself in their shoes like just I try to as the guests are speaking, you know, and yeah. I'm just like I can't I can't be in that situation. I have no clue. I mean, that's I guess that's not totally true because you just react to emergencies because you have to. Yeah, but, but you're not you're not sitting around going to an emergency every day. Right. Like that's not my profession. That's a different deal. And and it's a different mindset. Yeah. And and I just think that he's the type of person that we need everywhere. Like in all professions, like that mentality. And that's not to say that he didn't have, you know, maybe second thoughts or didn't, you know, it's always something. But with the support of his wife, his kids, the church, like, right? Yeah. All those things. Can we call this episode, We Need Mike Everywhere? But put his last name so everyone doesn't think it's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need like, Mike, look at these we egomaniacs. Need, yeah. We need Mike Claypool everywhere. I think that's the title of this episode. I'm down with that <laughs> because I really believe that. And an interesting thing, too, is I opened up. I think I kind of blindsided him with this story. And you'll hear this story. Like when I first became Orthodox, it, there were some it's literally different than anything you've ever experienced. Anything you think of at church, any. Yeah. So I tell a story of how I thought there were some rude people in the church when I first got there. And he was one of them. And I think he chuckled, you know, laughed a little bit. And not only was I wrong completely, like <laughs> he's like seriously one of my favorite people. There you go. You know what I mean? So I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. And um, that's really all I got. Yeah. Good. Enjoy it. Enjoy the episode. We need Mike Claypool everywhere. You're listening to the Start Today podcast. And today... I have a very special guest, someone I've been wanting to speak to for at least a couple of months, um, Mr. Mike Claypool of AMR. Uh, say hello to our listeners. Hello, listeners. Good morning. Hello to our, I'm not going to give you the number, the millions of listeners. Like That's where <laughs> we're at. We have so many listeners. It's only because I'm on. That's why. That's right. People just know that you're on. So... Uh, I met Mike probably nine years ago, almost nine years ago, I think, when I first um, came into orthodoxy. I'm right now, basically, Start Today just pulls from the talent pool of orthodoxy. I'm basically using my friends to get episodes out of them, but they are interesting people. So 
I'm guessing it's been about nine years since I walked in those giant double doors. But I don't know when I officially, formally met you and your wife. At the church hall. It, must have, it was still like 2012, I think. Okay. That's my, uh, my recollection. And I have an interesting, interesting thing. This is what I've learned about when you become Orthodox. <laughs> it's not like anything you've ever done in your life if you're American and you walk through those doors. Like, you and your wife both like did not strike me as pleasant people if i'm allowed to say that ouch no it was harsh i know it's harsh and i was 100% wrong but i think i met you in times of seriousness and that's the thing that i didn't know about orthodoxy is like there's times to to have fun and and but there's also time like when the eucharist is coming out get out of the way like move <laughs> out of the way right like your whatever is not as important. And I just have that memory of being like nudged, like move. I think you even said like move one time. And then your, your, your wife, Mary, who's super awesome. It was the same thing. There was like some like banquet or patronal feast and I was standing in her way. She goes, can't you get out of my way? (laughs) And just being like coming from like a, not that like short little five six <laughs> and now i've come to realize like you guys are seriously like the most amazing people and i i couldn't have been more wrong and i have made that thank you we have you fooled yeah so was my initial my initial thought correct or 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 is that what you mean <clears throat> no no you guys are sweethearts we are sure but you know we've we've given a task we've been given a task by Father Josiah to to take care of the outside of the of the church the the uh, west side of the uh, uh, iconostas yeah and you know keep things in order there and you know and he said you know if if you tell people stuff it's coming from me you know right. du- direction and stuff um, so we you know we take that seriously obviously but you know. Yeah, and that's a that's the thing that I didn't realize when I as I grew into into orthodoxy, but compared to where I come, came from, there was no um there was no even knowing really who the main pastor was. There was no such thing as this is an extension of my authority. That didn't even ex- like it yeah. these mega churches and stuff like that, that's not how they operate. The the lead pastor doesn't know his congregation on that level, let alone his volunteers on that. You oh, know? Yeah. 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 So that's why it was actually, I don't know. I grew up Orthodox, so I don't know anything but Orthodoxy. So I think that's really cool. What do you think about that? Like, do you, have you ever visited a, a non-Orthodox church? I, I have, I've gone to funerals. I went to, uh, my, one of my friends, one of my son's friend died and we went to a Calgary, Calgary? Calvary. Calvary Chapel. <laughs> I can't talk this morning. Cal- Calgary would be a and, cool name, too. Yeah. And it, it was like going to a movie theater, and I sat down on the chairs and said, I'm going to fall asleep in five minutes because they're so big and comfortable. Yeah. And uh, nothing religious on the walls, nothing religious 
to speak of. Even the stage and the the uh, speakers and the lighting are, you know, it looks like you're going to movie theater. Yeah. No disrespect to the Calvary Chapel people, but um, different aim and different focus. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely something that I noticed right away, like when I stepped foot into what became my um, my home, you know, was the immediate beauty. Because I was always told that, um, and it, and and it seems so contrary now that I that I've you know been around the church that I'm at now at, at, at for this length of time. But I was told before that God God doesn't care about beauty, which seems so ridiculous. I'm sorry, that's so <laughs> inherently just ridiculous. Yeah. Like if there is such thing as a God, you know, for those who are listening who may not believe the same thing, if there is no such thing as or if there is such thing as a God, he certainly would care about beauty. That's what I would think. Oh. It would be inherent in the... Look at his churches. Look at the inside of his churches. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but, so anyways, I don't remember when I asked you to come on, but it, I, I think it was like two, three months ago. Yeah. And the thing that people who don't know Mike is that he's got stories, endless endless <laughs> amounts of stories in a what is a uh i assume a a long career in in ems 38 years in ems did i say ams i didn't mean that no wrong bow i said it right i think so <laughs> so do you mind giving people a little bit of a background sure um <clears throat> i grew up in uh orange county um graduated in 1974 at the very end of the vietnam war era and wanted nothing to do with the military service. Um, that was never an option for me, although uh, years later I wanted to join the Coast Guard. And I really had no direction. I just wanted to get out of high school. Um, had no intention of going to college or anything. Yeah. And then realized uh, after I'd been out for a couple of years that, gosh, in order to get a real job or any kind of a decent job, you have to have some sort of an education. And uh, became interested in becoming a firefighter and uh, decided to go that route and then found out how difficult it was that the average person takes between eight and ten years to get a firefighter job. Um, Not an easy task. Um, You had to be an EMT in order to do that. So that was one of the first classes that I took. And uh, it's a semester class. It's, you know, a five-unit eight hours a week class plus, you know, doing write out time and all that stuff. So, um, and I, I really enjoyed that. And then I decided to, uh, in my venture to go towards, uh, becoming a firefighter, I decided to get some actual experience in order to get that experience. I decided to join the coast guard and, uh, <clears throat> get some experience as a firefighter, as a coast guard. On the Coast Guard. And uh, in the Coast Guard, it's called damage control is what their firefighters are called. So I Damage. Ser- con- that Damage control, yeah. <laughs> that is not a fluffy term, is no. it? That is. No. <laughs> <laughs> so as I'm focusing towards that, I went for, a, for the physical test. And uh, they gave me the colored blind test, which includes the book of looking at the dots and stuff. And right. I... I, he said, read the number in the book. 
in the dots. And I oh, it was like maybe like a green, yeah, with a di- yeah. slightly different and, color. And in I the asked numbers. him if this was part of the psychological test because I didn't see a number. And the guy's going no, and he turned the page. He goes, now what number do you see in in that circle? And I said, I don't see any numbers. Is this part of the psych test? Because <laughs> I don't see anything. And so he had to go to the back of the book and read the book. And turns out I'm red, green, colorblind, which means I couldn't become a, a damage control officer, which yeah. means I also couldn't become a firefighter because you have to be able to see the different colors, including law enforcement. I couldn't be a cop because you can't chase a car that you can't see what color it is. <laughs> it makes it difficult. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That's What is it about specifically red and green? Like, did you end up... That obviously triggered like, uh oh, I have a problem. What did the the I'm doctors? I'm not that bad. My brother's, my brother's really bad. Um, he doesn't see. He's really bad when it sees red green. But when I take the test, but I can pick out red and green. You know, like I see a red light, I, I know the difference between a red light and a green light. Obviously, it's not just position. <laughs> no, of the light you no. can actually see it. But you know, when they blend them like that, some of them become questionable. It's just. Yeah. But I and I've talked to people over the years that uh, firefighters that have cheated the uh, firefighter colorblind test and actually uh, uh, had contact lenses that they put in or they were given <laughs> given the answers to the <laughs> the number that's inside of the book that you that you would see. Yeah. But uh, you know, I wasn't about to do that. You know. So I I just uh, I enjoyed the medical side of it. Uh, the the EMS side of it and just kind of kind of went that route. So you, you finished EMT school? Finished EMT school, uh, decided not to become a uh, Coast Guard uh, employee and um, kind of liked uh, the EMS schedule, working uh, 24-hour shifts, 10, 12 days a month. And uh, having a bunch of days off, so I could, you know, do whatever I did. Yeah. So <clears throat> I enjoyed that part of it. Um, got burned out a little bit. Uh, decided to become a uh, paramedic after a few years. Um, I was working for a company in Orange County that was going to put me through paramedic school, um, and actually went through paramedic school in Orange County Saddleback College program. Mm-hmm. It was their second class, and I actually failed out of the program, um, <clears throat> which was obviously devastating to me. Um, it was you, Im- you didn't feel like you earned the F, like you felt like they it wasn't not earned it, but it wasn't deserved. Yeah, and and the standards for uh, EMT school and paramedic school are a lot different than anything else. We had to maintain in paramedic school an eighty percent or higher. If we ever drop below that 80%, we were kicked out of school. But I had finished didactic. We had finished our clinical time, which is your hospital time, your ER mm-hmm. time, ICU time. Uh, we went into surgery uh, to intubate, learn how to intubate patients. That's where you put the tube down the patient's throat with an anesthesiologist. We learned how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I made it through clinical and... Uh, in Orange County, we did uh, 12 shifts with uh, two different departments. So you do a total of 24, 24-hour 24 shifts. 
So uh, I did start it off with Orange Engine 1 in Orange. It's in the middle of Orange County. And those guys were great. Uh, we had a great relationship. We were coming in early and working out together and uh, having a great time. And we had a great relationship. And then I went to uh, Huntington Beach, uh, and those guys were completely different. I couldn't do anything right. I mean, they literally found something on every single call that I did. Was that, was that like a <clears throat> put you through the ringer so you understand the severity of the job type no, of thing? No, it was put me through the ringer so we didn't pass you. Oh, it was, it was there, intentional. There were, there were politics involved. Um, the community college had just gotten the contract. Uh, it used to be a private program before. Uh, all of the fire departments were afraid that private paramedics were going to come in and take away revenue from their city. Um, so paramedics have always been with fire? Most of them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously starting off with, you know, L.A. City. Um, there's departments across the United States that are actually third service through the health department, their their fire department or their uh, health department paramedics, um, but most of them are through the fire department. Um, yeah, I work for a private entity now that provides paramedics. Uh, and up until about ten years ago, the fire departments in Riverside County didn't have paramedics. We were the the private paramedics were the uh, ones that provided service to the community, and it saved the community money. Because the firefighters didn't have to be paramedics, so we didn't have to pay the extra money for those guys. So, and then we did all the transporting. So, yeah, yeah. So, if in between being a EMT and paramedic, which is two different classifications of Correct. worker, Correct. can you? So, you graduate EMT school. Do you remember your first call ever? My, As an my first call that I recall was at a nursing home in Newport Beach. And the lady had had died at the nursing home. And uh, we got on scene and we were just helping the fire department do CPR on her. And uh, we, we, sorry. Was that me? We, no, that was me. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and uh, so we were doing CPR on her and uh, we transported her to the hospital, but she ended up ultimately dying yeah uh, but yeah that was the first call that i recall how, um, how old were you i think it was in my early 20s so what was your response like we all know that everything on paper doesn't quite hit as hard as when you first experience it Right, like whether yeah. whether it be marriage or this or yeah. that, everyone can tell you all the words in the world. It's gonna expect this. There's gonna be craziness, blah blah blah, whatever. But you don't know it until you experience it, yeah. right? Yeah. So what? But, what was but your even back then? We don't know. What we obviously know about PTSD and all that stuff. You kind of dealt with it. Yeah. Um, and being young and and stupid, you know, I I just kind of moved on. Um, I kind of realized, you know, after a few years of being in the business that, you know, life's pretty precious. And then, you know, we had tendency to, you know, you see stuff and everybody kind of freaks out. And I kind of go, oh, yeah, big deal. Yeah. You know, and you see that with nurses and doctors and they kind of they kind of do the same thing. And 
you know, you built this, you build this filter up that, that, uh, you kind of, I don't know how to explain it. You know, you just kind of have this filter that kind of, you know, the little, don't sweat the little stuff, right? you know, focus on, focus on the big stuff. Um, you know, it, 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 and it, you know, it's progressed obviously being a, being a paramedic now for 25 years. Um, you, you kind of deal with stuff. Uh, one of the, one of the stories that I enjoy telling was, uh, uh, when I was in paramedic school, <clears throat> I was at Redlands fire department. This is when I went back the second time I went to Crafton Hills college, which is a great program. And, uh, I went through their program and I was doing my, my field time at Redlands fire department. And, uh, one of the things that we learned in paramedic school was how to deal with death. And, um, matter of fact, the first day of the second week was you brought your significant other into class and they discussed it with your significant other. So they know what you're going through. You know, huh. and how to deal with yeah, with, that's interesting with the stressors of life, and this is in 1993, so this is years ago they were doing it, and so uh, we had this. Uh, uh, it was a Friday night in the middle of summertime. It's the middle of August. We had this uh, traffic accident. Um, came down as a person fell out of the back of a pickup truck on the 10 freeway in Redlands, and. Uh, we're like, okay, that doesn't sound like a fun call. So uh, we headed for the call, and you have to go down, you know, past the exit and get on the freeway to where the location is and stuff. And we got on scene, uh, and the fire or the um, the uh, ambulance paramedics were there dealing with the patient who, unfortunately, was an eight-year-old that had fallen out of the back of a pickup truck. And uh, pre seatbelt laws. I I remember doing that as a kid too. Actually. Well, actually, they were the the turns out, belts, turns, out me, the, turns out the family was uh, driving from Texas to Ventura, and uh, it was eleven thirty at night. Uh, the eight year old daughter and the ten year old son were sleeping in the back of the pickup truck. The two younger kids, who were probably four and five or five and six. We're in the cab of the pickup truck. Uh, it was a crew cab. It just had the little jump seats. Yeah. They, they weren't full seats. They were sleeping behind the thing. And mom was driving. Mom looked in the rearview mirror and saw the eight-year-old standing up in the back of the pickup truck. And the eight-year-old had a history of sleepwalking. So, uh. so we're not sure if she was sleepwalking or what the story was and we're not sure if mom overreacted and jerked the car and she fell out or if she actually stepped out of the car but she ended up in the middle of the uh 10 freeway the middle lane of the 10 freeway which is three lanes each direction and the 10 freeway is a major thoroughfare through california literally goes from california to florida and uh The parents pulled over and had jumped out of the car and were running down the freeway, and a semi came along and uh, uh, hit the girl and uh, killed her instantly. 
mom ran out onto the freeway and uh, <clears throat> grabbed her and had her on the yellow lane, yellow line of the uh, fast lane uh, between the fast lane and the emergency lane and was doing CPR on her when the ambulance paramedics got there. Uh, mom stopped doing CPR. The paramedics assessed her and realized that she was dead, so they pronounced her dead. And they told me, and then they covered her up, but the ambulance was kind of blocking her. So you, you were in school still? I was still in school. Oh. And so the uh, my preceptor said, <clears throat> um, you know, this is part of your job. You're going to have to tell the parents that, the, that their daughter's gone. And so, um, yeah, I had to go up and tell uh, the parents that the eight-year-old was dead. And that's what you tell them is the baby's dead. And uh, so obviously they were upset. Um, they had to tell their their own kids. So I kind of hung around them. Uh, one of the things that we learned in paramedic school is utilize your resources. So I requested a chaplain to come out and help deal with the family and stuff. And so they requested the chaplain and, you know, dealing with the family, kind of hanging around them, just watching them. Um, they, they explained to the 10 year old that their sister was dead, but they said, they said that she was gone and the ambulance had left and she goes, I know they're gone. We have to go to the hospital to see her. And I had to tell the 10 year old that no, your, your sister's dead. She had to re-articulate it. Yeah. She's, she's under the blanket there. And, um, then, uh, about 20 minutes later, the firefighters go, Hey Mike, your chaplain's here. And I went, okay. I go, I'll, I'll go talk to him and fill him in. And uh, he came driving up in, a, in an old Buick. And I'm looking going, okay. And uh, as the door opens up, uh, I see a cane come out. And then an elderly gentleman who had to be at least 75 years old, if not older. And so I introduced myself. And uh, he was the, the fire department chaplain, police chaplain. And uh, as we walked towards the family, I explained to him what had happened. And yeah. he kept stalling, stopping and going, oh, no. Oh, my. That's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, uh, okay. And uh, so I, I explained to him, I said, you know, they're Catholic and the eight-year-old hadn't been baptized. And I had some sterile water with me. And I said, you know, if you could go do a baptism. I said, I realize it doesn't make a difference. But I think it would help them. And he looks at me, he goes, I don't believe in baptism. And what? <laughs> that's what I said. And I said, I'm, okay, now I'm officially in EMS hell. And, yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, you need to make an exception and just, you know, bless, you know, bless the family or bless the, bless the baby. And that way the family knows. And he goes, no, I couldn't do that. That wouldn't be very ethical. And I'm just going... Well, you know, if I would have known that, I could have done it myself. They teach us that in EMT school, you know, or, or is it, you know, even as a Christian, you can do it, you know, and we realize it doesn't make a difference, but, you know. Yeah. So. You're in a situation to accommodate the family. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I ended up dealing uh, with mom quite a bit, talking to mom. She was upset, obviously. Uh, she was upset that the truck had driven away. She said, the truck hit my daughter, 
and drove away like she had hit a dog. And I said, no, the truck driver's across the freeway, and he's very upset that he hit your daughter. He's still over there. And then uh, the other thing that I remember is uh, because mom had done CPR, she was covered, her mouth and her hands were covered with blood. And they CHP said they were going to take her, take the family to uh, Redlands Police Department and uh, do some more interviews and, you know, talk to them, but just to get them off the freeway. And I realized as soon as mom went into the building with lighting, she's covered with blood. So I went and got a, a towel and my sterile water and cleaned mom up. Yeah. And I still remember, even in the dark, this towel that was white uh, just slowly became red with the girl's blood. Mom just sat there and sobbed the entire time while I washed her hands and washed her face and stuff. And But the one thing that I remember is I was putting the four-year-old sister into the car, into the CHP car. I, I was buckling her into a car seat. She looks at me and she goes, my sister's an angel now, isn't she? And that, and that's the thing that... I think I would have lost it. I, I would have absolutely I, lost I it. I almost did. I almost did. And I'm just like, it took a minute to sink in. As I'm walking back to the squad, I said, okay, I'm going to stand here in the, in the bushes because they still had bushes as the center divider back then. I stand here in the bushes for a minute and kind of get my composure and stuff. Yeah. And uh, they had a, a stress team uh, uh, that was going to come and talk to us. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, all of us kind of went, yeah, forget this. We're not waiting. Uh, I got off the next morning, and uh, our priest at the time was Father Paul Finley. Um, his wife was a nurse. Um, so I knocked at the door at 7.30 in the morning, and apparently my it was written all over my face. <laughs> she, she opened the door, and she goes, and she never cusses. She's a you know typical Presbyterian. She looks at me and goes, oh, shit, you had a bad call. <laughs> I'll get Father up. So, yeah. And she slams the door in my face, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. And then she opened the door, she goes, I am so sorry. And she invites me, and I sit there, and Father Paul gets up, and we went out, and we uh, we had breakfast, and we made sure we went to a place that we could have a couple beers. <laughs> and, it, and it was funny, because we're sitting in the back of the uh, restaurant uh, having beer and uh, our omelets, and, <laughs> and, and, of course, I was crying to Father Paul, telling him the story. And then he'd tell me stories, and he was crying. And so both of us are literally crying. These these grown men are crying. <laughs> and the, the waitress kept coming up to us asking us, is, is everything okay? Is, uh, you know, there something something I can get you? And No, and, and, it's not okay. And Father Paul, Father Paul goes, no, I'm a priest, and I'm counseling him. You know, he he's a paramedic student. He had a bad call last night. And the waitress looks at Father Paul and goes, but but who's counseling you <laughs> because he was crying as much as I was. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, you know, obviously, uh, being in paramedic school, um, you know, becoming a paramedic, you have more responsibility, you know, being an EMT, you kind of primarily, you know, just transported the patient, but becoming a paramedic, you know, you take on that added responsibility of, of, you know, letting family members know, yeah, you know, that you're, you're, 
your family members died. I mean, you know, that's one of the hardest things is these couples that have been married for 50, 60 years. You know, you go on grandpa who's died and you walk out and you have to tell the, the wife of 50 something years that, you know, her husband's dead. Um, yeah. You know, that's, <clears throat> it's a tough job, but you know, um, I, I think I've gotten, you know, unfortunately I've gotten good at it. You know, uh, I know where my support group is, you know, my wife, my kids, um, my, uh, my daughter was the same age as the, uh, eight year old that died. And I went home that day, uh, and gave her a big hug and, uh, you know, they, they knew when I had a bad call cause I'd go home and give them a big hug that involved a, a kid. I'd give them a big hug. Yeah. And things change when you're a paramedic and you don't have kids, you kind of move on, you know, but when you have your own kids, you know, you see your kids in the kid that you take care of. Yeah. You know? And so I'd go home and hug my kids. Dad, dad, you had a bad call again. I'm sorry, dad. <laughs> it's so funny. It just kind of sets you right. And, and they, I would be- think. they become your support group along with my, my priest and, you know. Yeah. When my dad was, excuse me, when my dad was in the Marine Corps, he did, I think, several jobs, but most of it, all of it revolved around uh, rescue. So he did a lot of the the swimming uh, rescue stuff. But I think the primary, for the most of his career, he was a firefighter, but crash crew. Yeah. So it, so if, if you were, we were, I wasn't born in Orange County. I was born in 29 Palms and I, I've lived in 29 Palms a few different times in my life, but we lived when both bases were open out. There was Tustin and El Toro. They were, we yeah. lived on Tustin. Yeah. My dad worked at El Toro, but when he was set to retire, which was, which interestingly enough, he was my age now when he was retiring from wow. the Marine Corps. Yeah. Four kids in, like, single dad, you know, all that. And I remember him telling me stories. Like, there was one time, I think he woke up my brother in the middle of the night. He's like, I got to go get your brother up for school. I'm out of here. Like, it was, you know, 2, 3 in the morning, whatever. Mm. And I was in middle school. My brother was in high school. And uh, a plane inspector had been partially decapitated because he made a mistake inspecting a plane before it was set to take off. And my dad, you know, has tons of these stories too, like you do. But there's something my dad is kind of like known for saying, no one made that grown man strap his ass underneath that, (laughs) (laughs) underneath that airplane, right? The airplane goes down. Yeah, you have to do all this. You have to talk to the family. You have to explain to the wife that the plane went down. You have to, you know, they, whatever the case was. Yeah. But when he retired, when he was 38, that's why he didn't go into public uh, firefighting. Mm. He never dealt with houses. Yeah. He dealt with airplanes, with highly trained people who either made mistakes, had ego issues, as in the 1989, I think, um, El Toro Air Show when yeah. it went down. My dad worked that scene. Oh, okay. Where the the lieutenant or the 
colonel or whatever. I, I forget the rank structure, but the guy was in an airplane he wasn't familiar with showboating, and mm. it went down. Mm. I mean, that happens. Yeah. House fires, car accidents, all this. Kids have no option. No. They just do what they're told, and he was like, I'm not doing that. <clears throat> yeah. I can deal with the death of an adult all day, especially in that scene, because they chose that career. Yeah. And with, you know, so... I think it's interesting. It doesn't change the fact that someone needs to do it. And even like these alpha males are like, I'm not dealing with the kids. Oh, yeah. I'm just not doing it. Yeah. So he didn't. He went a different route, totally unrelated to firefighting when he retired and didn't have to deal with it. But I think the kids is a bigger issue. I think death is hard enough. Even if someone's oh, yeah. 85, yeah. it still seems tragic. But... Like I, I can totally see if you went on that call in school and be like, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm oh yeah, I'm dropping out. Yeah. I'm not doing it no more. Yeah. Well, you know, and some some people would have. You know, I worked in Orange County uh, for several years, but I worked for a company called Schaefer Ambulance in Orange County from 1978 to 1980, and uh, we would switch. We had Costa Mesa and Newport Beach. And we would switch every other month with uh, another company. So we'd have Costa Mesa one month and Newport Beach the next month. And so it was June. Um, I forget what year it was, but uh, it was prom night. And uh, this couple had gone out with a bunch of friends like everybody does. And they eat and uh, they had been drinking or he had been drinking and turned left in front of a car pulling into the, at the time it's called the New Porter Inn on uh, MacArthur Boulevard, just north of uh, Coast Highway, where their prom was, and got T-boned um, on the on the driver's on the passenger side, in between and, the uh, restaurant and <clears throat> their final. In between the, uh, yeah, they were on their way to yeah. the actual prom from the to restaurant. The prom. It was at the New Porter Inn. And got T-boned, and uh, she was trapped in the car, and we were in the process of cutting her out of the car. And originally she was talking, and then she stopped talking, and then she uh, stopped breathing, and we you know, ended up cutting her out of the car, got her out of the car. And I still remember cutting her prom dress off, and, you know, that, that you know, she'd probably worn for all of three hours. And uh, cut this thing off, and she's laying there with just panties on in front of all of her friends who had come out and were doing CPR on her in front of all of her friends. Ugh. And, uh, you know, I just remember going, you know, I kind of, you know, I was moving the gurney to the other side of the car, and everybody's going, what are you doing? Stop, stop moving the gurney. I go... All of her friends are over there. Let's move her behind the car. So They're, like, looking at her. Yeah. 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 And uh, then one of the... Uh, and there were a total of four patients. There were two people in each car. And the fire captain comes up to me and goes, uh, Mike, your partner's in the bushes over there vomiting. And I went, what? <laughs> and I, I had a brand new partner. And I... Okay. So I had to stop uh, assisting them and ran over, got him behind the wheel of the car he said you have to drive us to the hospital in a couple minutes get your composure get your stuff together you got to drive us to the hospital it doesn't look good too when the people that 
you're expecting. <clears throat> yeah. Like really, police, firemen, other types, they are there to do the job so mm-hmm. we don't have to, right? Like in in theory or principle. Right, right. I don't know how it looks when the guy that's supposed to be the one <laughs> is throwing up it. in the bushes. So, <laughs> uh, Needless to say, that was his last day. So, uh, yeah, he was, it was, it was too much. For, and it wasn't a brutal call. I mean, you know, there weren't, you know, body parts all over the place. It was just dealing with this little, you know, 17, 18 year old girl and her, and her boyfriend, uh, was just too much for him. And yeah. So, you know, that some people, some people don't handle it. So, right. You know, some people, and then nowadays, you know, as things have progressed, uh, PTSD, you know, unfortunately, guys will, you know, cops, cops mostly because they have access to guns. You know, they end their lives because of PTSD, because the things build up on them. Yeah. You know, and uh, we're trying to deal with that. We have teams and, you know, I'm part of a team that, you know, does that with IOCC um, to deal with, with stuff like that. So I, I remember taking a criminal justice class at Riverside um, city college. I'm not much of a student myself. (laughs) (laughs) I seriously, for all the value that I see in education, I cannot stand it for the life of me. It's just, Oh, it's so rough. But I was in this class and the, the professor who I actually, I really liked this guy. Um, he was a retired, he was an older African American guy. He had come to Moreno Valley in the sixties because he was in the Air Force, mm. got out of the Air Force, needed a job, wasn't going to go back home to the South. And I think he already had kids and a wife and became uh, a deputy with the Sheriff's Department in the 60s. If you can imagine, Riverside County probably 50 years ago is not what it is today. No, it, it no. Was, it's probably more cowboys, well, cowboy it, cops. In, and the, in the 28 years that I've lived here, it went from a million people to 2.5. Yeah. So... Yeah. So, yeah, it's a so he went from that. Promoted really quickly. And he always said he ended up in Inglewood as chief of police. This guy was pretty amazing. Like he made his his way all the way up. He had a Ph.D. before 40, I think. Wow. He made his way all the way up to what's the highest unelected position for a county sheriff. Is it like under sheriff or? Yeah. Basically, he was like number three in the county and then eventually got a chief of police job in Inglewood and lived in the city. He got the city to buy him a house. He lived next door to like gang members and stuff. Like he was like the first one that I know of that I've ever heard of actual like in city, like community policing, you know. But anyways, he said, and he, he was kind of a controversial guy at some point, I guess. Um, he knows that he his his theory was or his thought was I want my officers psych tested every five years. Good idea. Yeah, and I don't know if that ever got implemented because then you have to deal with like unions and contracts. Oh and yeah, like kind of yeah. all that stuff. So I can see that it probably didn't happen, but I see the value in that because especially now we're living in a narrative of like toxic masculinity and all this stuff that says like <laughs> all this stuff is like bad for you. But on one end, and I've never experienced the shut up, boy, stop crying. 
my dad might chuckle from time to time, be like, dang, where did you guys get your emotions from? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because my dad dealt with death since he was 17. Yeah. That's when he joined the Marine Corps. He dropped out of high school to do it. And I think you guys are the same graduating year. So he was, he joined the Marine Corps November of 1973, which was his 17th birthday, okay. which would have been his junior year. Yeah. And... He's just like, man, your guys' mom like really got to you or, yeah. you know, or like whatever the yeah. case is. <laughs> but there was never this stop feeling. So I don't I don't know what that is. And maybe in the Marine Corps, that is an actual thing because you have to go to war. Yeah. You have to you have to be composed. You don't have a choice. Oh, yeah. Your lack of composure can get people killed. You know, the situation with your, you know, the, the guy that was fresh and thrown up in the bushes. Yeah. That wasn't going to get anyone killed, but I think if you're a cop or, you know, these other things. Oh, yeah. Or maybe it could in a different situation. Yeah. Or, you know, but, cop could just freeze and not react to, you know, what's going on around him. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, I think ultimately we need to be able to process men's emotions. Whatever they are, because we have them. We don't have oh, a yeah. choice. Yeah. Yeah. So what... <laughs> How do, how do how do they actually deal with it? Like, do Cop, they force cops, counsel or cops are a lot different than firefighters, paramedics, EMS workers? We have tendency to tell stories. That's part of our stress management. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about what we do, what we've done, you know, with our coworkers, you know, with our family members, you know, and. Uh, a lot of times we we sanitize the stories, and you know, uh, Father Josiah. When I first started telling him stories, he would stop me and and just look at me and go, "Michael, I I, I don't want to hear these stories." And I go, "Father, you you're my confessor. You have to hear my <laughs> stories. I I don't want to hear them. You go find somebody else." <laughs> and it took him a while to finally, and of course, I sanitized him. <clears throat> sanitize my stories, you know, uh, even when I tell, you know, some of the stories, you know, you, you can't emphasize everything that happens, the smells, the smells that, and the stuff that you see and just yeah. walking into some of these houses, you know, even in Orange County, these, you know, these houses that you literally walk into and you're nauseated because they're so dirty um, we went to one house and the floor was, was wet and I'm going, why, why is the floor, why is the carpet all wet? And I walked down and I'm looking at my boots and I'm going, why are my boots? I mean, you know, and it's three quarters of an inch that they're wet and I'm going, oh, animal urine. Oh, who knows? Oh. You know, and the whole place just stunk. Um, you know, the fire department's all standing outside going, yeah, they're your patient. Go get them drag them out and so yeah you know, and we treat them outside and you know uh you know you can't talk about the smells or you can't you know even if you talk about it you can't you know well, how do you describe the smell understand. yeah <laughs> people don't understand and then other stuff that you see you know i you know again sanitize a lot of it you know especially in, in you know mixed company i don't you know, I don't go nuts when I tell some of my stories. I kind of clean them up a lot. But yeah. when I'm working with my 
co- when I talk to my coworkers, they're a little bit different and stuff. But cops are certainly <clears throat> a tougher uh, group to to deal with because they're you know they're they man up to stuff and they just don't like talking about stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, uh, Father uh, Father John Stephen Hedges from Santa Barbara. Uh, St. Athanasius has been a chaplain for a while, and he debriefs uh, police all the time, SWAT team members all the time and stuff. And he knows exactly what to do and what to say. Uh, he was debriefing the guys from uh, the Goleta shooting, uh, the the postal annex there that someone had gone through. And uh, a, a female... Was that the 90s? I think so. The female employee she had gone through and shot a, a bunch of people. Because that's where the phrase going postal came from, right? I think so. Was, was yeah. actually that yeah. situation. And so uh, he was debriefing the, uh, the, the SWAT team members that had gone through. They had two teams going through the building. And one team would clear one room, and they'd hold that room, and they'd move on. The, the next team would... And they'd leapfrog each other. Yeah. And so uh, what you do when you're debriefing uh, these guys is you tell them what they, what they did. And so Father John stopped each one of them in the middle of explaining what they were doing. Now tell me what you saw. Tell me what you heard. Tell me what you smelled. And, of course, you know, they, you could smell the gunpowder. And mm-hmm. I saw, you know, three or four bodies laying there. And uh, he goes, what did you hear? And their cell phones were going off because family members were outside. Oh. Because it had taken, taken, it took them two or three hours to clear the building. So it was already <clears throat> on the news. It was on already the news out that there. There had been a shooting and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on, who's dead. Well, everybody had their phone with them, and they're laying on the ground dead next to them, and their phones are ringing. Uh, and that would have been a trigger years later. All of a sudden, you hear that same ringtone, and it triggers that memory and stuff. And so, I mean, you know, that's how good Father John is, is to bring that up. And they, they said, oh, my God, I totally blanked that out because they're so focused on what's going on around them. Right. You know, and but that's why Father John does what Father John does, you know. And I, I guarantee you, doing that saved, saved lives by, you know, bringing that out. Um, it's it's really unique. You know, cops are are such you know men, men, you know, um, and but Father John knows how to get around that stuff. You know, yeah, and it's yeah. just you know usually it's just when all the guys are together they're tough, you know, but when they're alone with a chaplain or a priest or somebody, you kind of break down and and you yeah, kinda, you know, like normally I don't you know I don't go into work and talk to people and start crying, you know I'm I'm too manly for that, but alone you know with my you know priest or with with a good friend I could do it you know somebody that I know really well. And that's necessary, you think? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you know, I don't think I would have lasted that long in this business. And a lot of people don't last that long. They get in the business and they get burned out. 
Yeah. And I think that's part of being burned out is just, you know, not taking care of your mental health. I mean, you know, it's bad enough, you know, physically we, we, you know, beat ourselves up with what we do. Right. But mentally, you have to take care of yourself too. And thank God I have a great support group. When yeah. I went through Crafton, Crafton Hill School, they taught us how to deal with stress and, you know, uh, so now we're we're learning how to deal with that, you know. And I've been in this business for thirty eight years. EMS has been going on since the early seventies, you know, since emergency. But uh, so you, you know, kind of caught the 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 tail end of the beginning. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and we've we've watched stuff change. When I was when I was working in Orange County, uh, Newport Beach only had one paramedic ambulance one paramedic unit and so we'd go on calls all the time without without the paramedics and just being emts the firefighters were happy to see us oh thank god you guys are here really really oh okay because on the last call you didn't treat me very well because the paramedics were here you know yeah so uh you know so that was that's kind of fun but uh so what's the 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 arc of training, and there's a couple of questions I want to get to. I want to speak on mentally ill and drug addiction and stuff like that. But kind of right before we do that, I what does the the arc of training and the changing of protocol and the changing of technology and what going from say 1978 or whenever the year was that you started, or did you say it was 78? Yeah. So now, what is the, has there been some things where it's like, oh, no, we were good back then. We actually had it right, but we. We, we we've done that, yeah. We've gone. Kind of gone back and forth. We've gone from, oh, we used to do this, and then we stopped doing it, and now we're going back to doing it. Um, but I think the biggest, the biggest changes over the years is the technology that we have now. We, can, we, we bought, we just bought our new cardiac monitors. And they're about $65,000, and they do EKGs. And then they have a connection where you can do what's called a 12-lead EKG. And you can look at the changes in the heart on on the monitor, and the monitor will actually diagnose what's going on with the patient. Huh. If, if the patient's having an active MI, you can see it on the monitor, but the monitor also detects that. What's the MI? Um, sorry, myocardial infarction. Oh, okay. <clears throat> sorry, I do know what that heart, is. Heart attack. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it recognizes that, um, and that's why you know uh, that's part of it. You know, the other part is they have a sensor that goes on to your finger, tells you how much oxygen is in your system. Yeah, and then you can switch another button. It. And that same button can tell you how much carbon monoxide is in your system. So if you've been in a house that was on fire, you know, you can you can tell that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the and then we have the ability to take that EKG and do two things with it. Number one, you can upload it into your computer that you're documenting with. But the other thing is you can send it to a cardiologist that's sitting at our base hospital. Our base hospital in Riverside County is um, Riverside Community Hospital. Okay, we could, we could send it to the to the emergency room doctor, and they can look at it and go, 
okay, this this monitor says he's having a heart attack, but he's not really having a heart attack. There's something else going on. So they're they're reading <clears throat> what you're giving them before you show up. Is that their preparation? Well, or? we we can send it to them and and they can analyze it. They can look at it. But they're not our only STEMI center. We have STEMI centers all over the county that we go to. Mm. STEMI center is uh, a heart attack center if somebody's having a heart attack. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and and even that is just amazing when you take somebody in that's having an active heart attack. You walk in the door. There's a team that meets you, and you go up to the cardiac cath lab, and they can go in and go, oh, there's a blockage. And they can go in with a catheter and suck that clot out or put a stent in yeah. within minutes of walking through the door. And all of a sudden, the guy will go, oh, my chest pain's gone. And then you can wow. see the EKGs change. Yeah. You know, so the technology that, that's out there now is probably the biggest change. Um, sometimes that technology can be just a headache. Because that's not working the right way. Just a simple Bluetooth to go from that cardiac monitor into your computer. If that's not working, then, you know. But everything that that, that cardiac monitor does takes your pulse, your blood pressure, uh, your oxygen levels, all the stuff that goes in there from the minute that you turn it on, put the patient's age in there, it starts recording. So everything that you do the 15, 20 minutes that we have the patient on there goes into the computer. Yeah. And all that stuff is printed up and categorized, all the vital signs. So all that stuff doesn't have to be documented in there. It's pretty amazing. That is amazing. I have a friend um, that is uh, a PI, which it's interesting because you think of like who framed Roger Rabbit, like the guy with the the cheap suit living in his office. Because who hires PIs for things? But <laughs> they actually do. And he carries with him certain things in his car all the time that you never... I've never thought... it. I have an emergency kit. Well, I should use that in quotes. It's like a kit you get at Costco, right? Yeah. Probably like a thousand Band-Aids and some gauze or something. But he carries a tourniquet. Um... He, he has, like, a small list of things. Yeah. It's probably one of those, like, Costco kits, but with a legit tourniquet and something out, like a flashlight or, you know, like, these kind of basic things. What is the importance? Because we're talking about preserving life, right? Like, the, this is the point of mm-hmm. the whole business yeah. that you're in yeah. is getting them stable and moving them and getting them in surgery or whatever the case may be. What, how valuable or what is the importance that an individual has to be able to rise ab- above the stress? If you see an accident, if EMS is five minutes away or however long, I don't, I don't know what average response times are, but let's just say five minutes. The responsibility falls on people, I think. Like we're all in to, a community... To start stuff. To get things going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that, like, say, for example, I work for a school district. There's no mandate for my position or people in like positions to know CPR to do any of this. Really? No, there's no huh. mandate. Because huh. we have health techs on 
They used to be, I think, actual nurses. But they used to be nurses. But I, I the think they're... gotten cheap, yeah. Yeah, they have. Uh, there are nurses in the schools, but they're mostly supervisors. Um, but the health techs, I think, are equivalent to EMT certified. I think they're EMTs. Mostly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it kind of falls on them. Maybe teachers. And I only say maybe because I, I just actually don't yeah. know. Yeah. But... Recently, especially since starting this podcast, we've had numerous. I've had you know police officers on, you're on. I've um, I had a dispatcher one of the last episodes we put out for the sheriff's department. It's all kind of mandatory, and and I just think now, especially with talking to my friend that's a PI, like the urgent, it really is urgent that people in the community oh, know yeah. how to do this. CPR and now it's called Stop the Bleed. <clears throat> that's the big push too, and that's to you know learn how to control bleeding. Yeah, you know because what's the big thing now is active shooters. You Sadly, know, um, yeah, unfortunately. But we just took a class on, on active shooters, um, and this this uh, this ex military guy from uh, from Afghanistan. He was in Afghanistan. He taught this class, and the guy talked for two hours, and you're just riveted at his stories. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, and and we learn from each of, unfortunately, from each of the wars that we're involved in. And the big thing that we've learned from our recent wars, you know, the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq is, use of tourniquets because there was a push away from that there's push away from it because we're taught uh originally once you put a tourniquet on and you put a tourniquet two inches above you know it's usually an amputation yeah you know and you you do two inches because everything below that tourniquet is going to be lost so you put it as close as you can but now to through, the wound itself to the wound itself oh, okay. usually it's an amputation because you're using a tourniquet on your extremities and uh but through afghanistan and iraq uh you know the the uh military hospitals there um have learned you know that there's a, a grace period with a tourniquet and you're not just going you know close to the injury you want to go up into the armpit or up into the groin area. Yeah. You know, it may be the lower leg that's destroyed, but you want to get up there because that's where the arteries are and you want to cut that blood because it's you're more concerned about losing your patient than you are about losing that leg. Right. But they're able to save the leg because, you know, they're moving a lot faster now. Apparently a tourniquet can be on for as long as eight hours now. Which we never wow. ever thought, you know, um, years ago we never even thought stuff like that. During the Vietnam War, we used uh, they're called uh, mast m a s t m a s t mast suits. Military. Oh my God, I forgot what they are. Oh, military anti shock trousers, and you put these pants on. They're Velcro. These Velcro pants on. And you pump air into them, and you, they just squeeze down on the they wounds. Sque- they well, they squeeze down on the wounds, but they also pump the blood from your legs, allegedly pump the blood from your legs up 
into your uh, uh, like upper upper body up, into your torso. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. So, um, but we got rid of those uh, again. God, what year did we get rid of those? In the nineties. So they held on for a few decades. Yeah, yeah, we used them for a while. They were great, uh, but uh, you know we realized they they weren't working. They were a waste of time, so we got rid of them. Wow. So, but you know we learned that we learned that stuff from the Vietnam War. You know, military anti shock trousers. Yeah, is what they were called. But now you know we have you know even more stuff. You know we also have uh, this this medication that we give uh, again we learn this from the conflicts in afghanistan and iraq that uh, helps with clotting you know when people have massive bleeding so we we hang this medication that to induce clotting to induce clotting to stop the bleeding wherever, yeah. wherever it is and the stuff has been working right so yeah yeah and i and i can see that as a as a benefit because you're not running the risk of amputation, right? Like that's the point, right? Well, amputation, and then you know, if you're shot, shot anywhere in the torso, oh, okay. You know, you want to stop the internal bleeding. You know, yeah, you can't stop that. Yeah, that type of stuff. So, do you think we could take a question? This is from a a fan. Sure, we have one. <laughs> it's one guy. <laughs> it's one fan. Is it Michael? He's not here. That's why yeah. he said it. <laughs> Mike has sent in a question as an anonymous <laughs> fan. This is from William. It says, as a first, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had two cups of coffee this morning, <laughs> and I used to think that was a good thing. Now I'm, it, it, my mind is going all scatterbrained. Okay, so William asks, as a first responder, what are the most common symptoms and reasons for an emergency call and uh, upon arrival. Okay, it's kind of long, but as a first responder, what are the most common symptoms and reasons for an emergency call? And upon arrival, what drugs are the most common to treat those symptoms? What would be the most common drug used to just generally give someone, like if you come across someone? Okay. I don't um, know if, that, if I it, did that it, right, but... It, it depends on where you're working. Uh, in Orange County, we had a lot of pediatric calls. Um, you know, being Orange County being a little more upper class uh, than than parts of Riverside County that we cover. Um, you know, we saw a different. You know, shortness of breath, chest pain, people that were, you know, legitimately sick. Um, in Riverside County, it's a variety of stuff. Uh, 30 to 40% of our calls are trauma, uh, gunshot wounds, stabbings, automobile accidents, auto versus bicycle, auto versus cars, stuff like that. So 30, 35, 40% of our calls are that. And then the rest of them are... That sounds like a lot. It sounds y- like it should yeah. be higher than... yeah. It should be. That yeah, sounds like a lot. It, it, it unfortunately it is. But you know, uh, the other thing that falls into trauma are falls. Mm. I think falls are the thirty fourth leading cause of death in the United States. Go figure. You fall know, meaning, fall meaning standing up and then falling down. <laughs> like nothing, even necessarily dramatic. Just yeah, I've fallen. You know, ten, 10 feet or more makes it a trauma. 
Um, but uh, ladder falls, grandma, stuff, grandma oh, yeah. falls. You know, gravity's a gravity's a bear. Um, yeah, that's you know <laughs> they break their hip or they break their pelvis because they're you know because um, they're older and they break a hip. You know, and some people don't recover from that. You know, they go in for surgery and have hip surgery and end up catching pneumonia and it ultimately kills them. But, uh, you know, there's a great, you know, there's a huge variety of different calls. Nothing's, it's never the same. You know, during flu season, we get a bunch of general malaise, general weakness type of calls. Um, You know, we have a nice share of, you know, chest pains and heart attacks and shortness of breath, you know, asthma, smoking. Uh, Can you identify? I would assume like maybe each call is not the same, but there's like familiarity within a range of calls, right? I think that... You can tell when someone's having a heart attack versus an asthma attack versus whatever. And again, the technology we have, and then we've been trained to to recognize different, different things, but... You know, most of our, I think a lot of our medications that we use um, are, uh, I think the most common, unfortunately, is our pain medication after somebody's hurt. You know, we, you know, people that are having chest pain, you want to take the chest pain away. Um, you know, somebody that falls and breaks their hip, uh, we carry ketamine now. Ketamine's a great drug. It has a half-life of about 15 or 20 minutes, which means that's how long it lasts. So by the time we get to the hospital, it starts to wear off. Yeah. You know, we can give this ketamine and it just makes them loopy, just snows them. And it's it's kind of funny. They actually hallucinate. Um, yeah. So they, they'll sit there and try to, try <laughs> grab, to grab, the grab, grab the butterfly. Grab the butterfly. Honest to God, that's what they do. <laughs> and uh, but but we also have uh, uh, Versed and uh, and fentanyl that we that we give. That's interesting because um, those are ticking off all kinds of uh, illicit drug use yeah. things in my brain. I'm and, just thinking, and, like, and I've seen documentaries to... like on each of those drugs. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, but uh, you know, and then we we have unfortunately we have a bunch of drug seekers, and the way the county protocol is written is, you know, if the patient wants to go to a different hospital, they can, and so being in Hemet after we, you take them. We, well, no. When we go out there, they have the ability to pick what hospital they want to go to. Oh, I, okay. I could see practically. So if, it, so if, I'm, so if I'm, I'm in downtown Hemet uh, and the patient has Kaiser insurance, we go around the corner out here, Kaiser Marina Valley. Yeah. But uh, we have patients all the time that I don't want to go to Hemet. I don't like the people in the ER there. Take me to a different hospital outside of Hemet. And it turns out that they've been abusing the system, which means they've been abusing drugs and they're getting prescription drugs from the ER doctors, you know. So or they're they, hitting another hospital in the and moment. They, they want to go to the, another hospital to get more drugs. I thought that, all, that was all on a national like registry almost. Yeah. I have but, to sign for Claritin D, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But no, we don't. Uh, we kind of, you know. And we kind of, and, but I think we've realized now that these guys are abusing the system, so they can abuse their drugs. Yeah. Um, and so they're they're doing a lot of, you know, linking 
you know, systems and stuff. And then we know these people and we just tell them, you know, you don't have a doctor there. We're not taking you there. We're going to him in hospital. I don't want to go. Okay. Sign the piece of paper. You know, you don't want to go. You don't want to go. That's fine. That's your choice. You know, do people have a, a right to die? It sounds like a weird question, sure. but sure, it, uh, California California state law actually has. It's not called assisted suicide. It's a suicide cocktail now. That you can go to your doctor. Obviously, not all doctors use it, but you can go and they'll give you a prescription to get this to get this uh, cocktail filled uh, to end your life. Uh, but there's cer- certain protocol that you you have to be terminally ill and you have to have less than six months to live. Well, I okay, so <clears throat> I I think I mean mostly you come onto a scene, someone has been in a serious car accident, or they've been like you say, uh, car versus pedestrian or something yeah. like that. Pedestrian is obviously unable to take care of themselves but in their frame of mind at the moment whether it be from the stressors or the trauma or they're just flat refusing like no i'm not going with you okay if you don't go with us you run the risk of dying here do they have a right to not go with sure if if they are in their right mind if there's alcohol or drugs on board they're going they're going you know, because they're not in their right mind. If they're if they're confused from the trauma, they're going. Yeah. Um, I'd rather get sued for saving someone's <laughs> life as opposed to going, okay, you didn't want to go? Yeah, I'm just going to leave you to die here in the street. Right. Um, you know, take me to court and sue me all you want to. Yeah. You know, I've been in the business 38 years. I've been deposed three times, I think. But it wasn't even involving me. But, uh, you just get I kind of lumped into something. Yeah, that... yeah. Uh, the last one, the last one was a guy that was on meth, and he was riding his bike. He's twenty eight, twenty nine years old, had a stingray bicycle, and was uh, uh, cruising along on his bike. Decided to cross the street uh, and hit the side of uh, this elderly lady's car. And ended up underneath her car, partially. His legs were underneath her car. In the people's panic, they thought the best thing is to have her move the car. (laughs) So she backs up over his leg and breaks his leg. Oh, wow. It took eight people to hold the guy down. We had to get an order for medication to get the guy calmed down because... Because was he meth, raging? Because of the method he had done and probably had something mixed, mixed in it. And uh, <clears throat> he ends up suing her for running over his leg. Wow. And so I got deposed. I got deposed for that. And so because I was a supervisor on scene and I had called the base and gotten the order for the medication. And so... I, I was I was angry that I had to drive all the way to Orange County to be deposed so this meth head could excuse my French meth head could sue 
poor grandma who was just driving along and was doing what the bystanders were saying, you know, right. to, to get get the car off of him. And and then he had the guts to sue her. And so um oh, I would have had I, a hard time well, looking his, at him. his he wasn't there. Uh, but the attorney was there. And I told the attorney, the only thing worse than a meth head who's suing the old lady is the attorney that represents him. <laughs> and, and, and her attorney sitting there just cracking up. And the lady that was taking the dictation is and she's trying she's trying not to laugh. And he goes, he goes, I don't appreciate that comment. And I said, Well, that's your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares what you appreciate? Yeah. <laughs> so I think I have a couple more questions that'll probably take us maybe another 20 minutes that's fine um the 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 thing that i i really want to start emphasizing with guests that work with the public and we discussed a little bit before we start recording is the homeless slash mental illness issue and i really want to like what do we do about these? Because you, I, I'm sure you get these like on probably innumerable calls all the time. Whether they're on, um, whether they're on drugs, whether they're having a psychotic breakdown, or or, or whatever they may be formally. Yeah, um, my my uncle, 25 years ago when I was in paramedic school, we went to Rodeo Drive around Christmas time to walk around and see the lights and stuff. And my uncle ran uh, South Orange County's outpatient mental health clinics. And uh, we were walking along, and um, at the time, my brother lived in uh, Beverly Hills, had a, a movie star girlfriend, or a TV star girlfriend. And uh, my uncle stopped. There was a homeless guy that was just sitting there with a, you know, asking for money, little sign. Yeah, and my uncle pulled a twenty dollar bill out and gave him twenty bucks. And my uh, my brother, as we walked away, my brother turned around and said, "You know, Beverly Hills, we're trying not to, you know, we don't want them here. Basically, right? we don't want them here, so we prefer not to give money." And my uncle just lit him up. He said, "Because of California cutting back, and this is twenty five years ago." Yeah, and it's progressively gotten worse because of the way that California has cut back on taking care of the mentally ill. They're homeless now. Forty percent. This is twenty-five years ago. Of the people that live on the streets, are mentally ill. They should be in mental health facilities, but they're not because of the cutbacks. Yeah, but now they're homeless. He goes, "Don't ever." Tell me who I can give and not give my money to. Sure. I don't care if we're in Beverly Hills or if we're in the ghetto. I'm giving somebody that's homeless money. Yeah. Because I have plenty of it and they don't. And and, and my brother, <laughs> he was he was irritated, but he was put in his place. Sure. You know, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the homeless people that we see... Um, Again, Father John Stephen Hedges in Santa Barbara, that he's had a great connection with the homeless people in Santa Barbara County. Um, I think Isla Vista, where 
uh, UC Santa Barbara is, and the and the church used to be, they had 128 registered homeless people there. On Isla Vista? On Isla Vista alone. Really? That's really and, surprising, And actually. they would come on Mondays to the church, and the church would feed them dinner. And uh, matter of fact, in, in Isla Vista, talk about a great, or not Isla Vista, but Santa Barbara County, talk about a great community. You've heard of Doctors Without Walls, or Doctors Without Borders. Right. In Santa Barbara County, they have Doctors Without Walls. So a group of uh, emergency room doctors and nurses, uh, AMRs involved, uh, social workers are involved, mental health workers are involved, uh, podiatrists are involved. They put a team together and they got grants to uh, have an RV and they park this RV out and they go deal with the homeless. And they talk to the homeless people. They provide medical care for them. They provide uh, dental care for them. They provide, you know, uh, and I never ever thought of this podiatry for these folks that are walking. And a lot of times they have flip-flops or old crappy shoes. Yeah. And they're, you know, um, and so they put these teams together and they go out and they help these homeless people. And the social workers get them other help, financial assistance. They get them institutionalized if they're losing it. Some of them are actually sick and and can't move. They call AMR in to transport them to a local hospital, you know, and get them care. It's pretty amazing what they're doing up there. But, yeah, a huge percentage of the people that we see that are homeless are mentally ill. It's, you know, the 40% 25 years ago, I think it's a lot higher than that. And, yeah. uh, you know, drug abuse, um, drug use for homeless people, you know, coping for being homeless, you know, I'm sure, you know, drug abuse is through the roof. Um, but it's, and it's progressively just gotten worse and worse over the years. Yeah. My... My, uh, I have a hard time with the homeless, and I always have, because I guess I just don't do well with just the public in general. I have a hard time <laughs> with that. <laughs> and it comes with, you know, parents and students and, you know, just, and so I thought it'd be a good idea from my previous church that I worked with the homeless, and I worked with them for two years at the same shelter, and the same shelter being the one that we deal with locally here. Okay. And I couldn't, I, I just couldn't stand it. I was in it two years. It was because, and I was prepped by the guy, mm -hmm. you know, by the guy that led the ministry before. Mm -hmm. Don't, this isn't a Cowboys type of <laughs> ministry. No. Because I was thinking of like, maybe get people in here to help them with resumes, this and that. And then I learned very quickly, that's not the issue. That's, no. that's not the no. point. Like, these aren't just me and <laughs> they're, you. They're not homeless because of bad resumes. Right, right. <laughs> these aren't me and you that just maybe are, some of them are bad with their money and they've just, they were one paycheck away. And oh, yeah. They hit the, they hit. We uh, all are. We're all one paycheck yeah. <laughs> away from being homeless. <laughs> and... But as I turned out, there was a guy in there, and I don't recall his name. 
We're sitting down just as, as we're sitting down now. And we would talk to them because a, a big part of it is an us versus them uh, way of thinking about, you know, how you approach them. Like, no, we serve them their food. We take the food that we serve them and we also eat that food. And at the time, they had a decent budget, enough to serve them hot food. And I know they don't get hot food all the time. No. So we, my attitude was, oh, they're just complaining that they don't get extra cheese on their uh, taco salad, mm-hmm. you know, and it would really irritate me. But then you had to, like, really get into it. You had to let yourself go of what you thought you were trying to do there. Because to be honest, it's not for you to decide what you're doing there. I, I don't know how to explain that any better, but we're just talking as, as you and I are talking. And I'm like, so I would get in their business because it, you know me, I, I just talk, talk, talk. I have no issues <laughs> talking to them about their dirt, you know, yeah. and I don't have any issues talking about my dirt for the most part. Say, so, well, what's your, what's your poison? What are you doing? Why are you here? You know, just, but in a, yeah. not in yeah. a confrontation, just talking. And one guy said, oh, I used to be a carpenter. I had a business. My wife was my secretary. And, you know, like the recession hit and we, you know, working for yourself in the just completely normal conversation. It's like, man, that's really terrible. Like, have you looked maybe working for larger companies or this or that? And he goes, well, I, I forgot exactly how the transition went, but it was basically... I can't do certain things or apply at certain places because I used to be an assassin for the CIA. And I was like, oh, and there we go. <laughs> there's the, there's where it really comes out. And, you know, I just pretended as if that wasn't a big deal. And I asked him, well, how did, why would you ever quit a job with the CIA to go make cabinets? and the conversation went where it went but then that's when i realized oh this isn't an issue of just people who are mismanaging money like this is a serious serious you know but but what's funny is a lot of them just choose to be homeless some of them like being homeless um right i was up in santa barbara with father john one time and he as people are walking up to the church, he points out this gentleman who was clean shaven and his hair was nice and his clothes were nice. And I'm going, okay, that's not your typical homeless dude. Right. And uh, he grabbed a plate and he goes, "Uh, the guy has a very uh, expensive house in Santa Barbara. His wife died uh, a few years ago and because everyone liked his wife, they didn't like him. <laughs> He's got no friends. And so he tried to make new friends, and nobody wants to talk to him. He goes, homeless people, they'll talk to whoever comes up to him. So he just put himself he, in that community. He, he comes out on the street during the day. He goes home every night, takes a shower, eats, you know, really? occasionally invites some of his homeless friends to... Uh, to his house, but he said that's pretty rare. But he yeah. just got lonely. He said I was. He's and he told Father John. He says I'm just lonely. I don't want to. You know, all of all of our friends didn't want anything to do with me after my wife died. So uh, you know, 
So I, you know, the, homeless peop- the homeless people like hanging out with me. And they have this great, they have this great little community. Yeah. That uh, they, because they're, you know, <clears throat> they all share the same thing. Right, <laughs> you right. Know, being, being homeless, being mentally ill, you know, and they put up with each other's, you know. Yeah. You don't want to say craziness, things. right? But yeah, yeah they're. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, this is where I get conflicted, right? When I read reports, whether it be from the news or wherever that, say the city of San Francisco is spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year toward the homeless, mm-hmm. but there's no reduction. There's no, it, it, no. and there's a. Because it keeps growing. There's loss. There's a loss of accountability. They're like, where's this trail of money going? And it kind of seems like people don't know. Yeah. Or and yeah. is should we see this as a problem? Or is this just life now? Because before it seemed like it was a civil rights thing, right? Like you can't these are American <clears throat> citizens for the most part, I'm assuming, and you can't force them. You're dealing with agency at some point. You yeah. can't oh, yeah. force them into a hospital and to take these drugs and to do these. But then people, and this is, I think, the real part of the issue. People don't want to deal with it, and they don't want to look at it. And should they be forced to deal with it? Because the state doesn't want to force people to get well. And it becomes this really, it gets nasty. Yeah, it's it's totally convoluted. Um, Again, to go back to Santa Barbara, they... They ended up getting a grant for um, to build a homeless shelter. Actually, it's homeless housing. Um, a local church just did that here <clears throat> well, in Riverside, right? Really? Yeah, they're called the Grove. They built houses, cottages on their property. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's a step in the right direction, getting them housing, you know, getting them on their meds, and then... You know, if if that's what they need, um, you know, getting them to save money and then, you know, getting them social services, getting them simple jobs, you know, so they can get back into society and become part of the the, the feeling biggest, purpose. Yeah. Well, and the biggest part, especially in California, is the cost of housing in California. You want to know why housing's so bad in San Francisco? It's because of the cost of, yeah, of, of housing in San Francisco. You know these houses uh, in downtown LA, uh, right at the where the ten and the five and all those. There's these two apartment complexes that have been there for years that someone finally bought up, gutted. Is re- that Boyle Heights? Re- like right off? Them. No, it's it's LA, but okay. it's downtown LA, and so I'm looking at. You know, I'm looking at their their ad on the on the thing. So I Googled it as I'm driving. And Don't do that, by the way, kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, my wife was driving. I oh. was <laughs> I was in the passenger seat, uh, and, and so I think the the smallest place was 550 square feet. It was a one. It was a studio. studio I take yeah. that back. And it was eighteen fifty. The largest place was a two bedroom, and it was thirty eight hundred dollars for a two bedroom in downtown LA. 
3800 bucks, and it's just like, okay, my wife and I do pretty good. We couldn't even afford that. Right, and that right. was a, And that was a two-bedroom. That wouldn't even be big enough for us. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, people move to the Inland Empire and to, you know, Marina Valley and Hemet because it's cheaper to live out here. Yeah. You know, Marina Valley. And it's Valley, not that cheap either. Marina Valley has gone up. You know, Hemet continues to be one of the – Hemet and Paris – continue to be the cheapest places to live and that's why we have the crime that we have and the you know yeah we have a bunch of section eight housing and you know it's kind of it's kind of sad but you know right but yeah i you know it's a great question and you know no we have to do something about it i don't know what we, we can't just keep letting it, this go just no. because they have. And it continues to be, you know, you know, go to downtown L.A. and drive around any of the streets. I drove to St. Nicholas uh, in downtown L.A. off of 3rd Street for a funeral a, a couple of months ago and got off the got off at Alvarado and the underpass was covered. The entire sidewalk was covered with tents. Of homeless people living there, and yeah. then just sur- the surrounding area, homeless people everywhere. And I'm going okay, but apparently that's you know that's very common. Yeah, it it feels like it's a yeah deal with it. This is yeah. what it is. Deal with it. And people people don't want to you know people don't want to deal with it uh, until it comes to your front porch, right? You know, or until they're blocking your driveway. My sister. My sister lived in an apartment complex in Portland and went to pull out, and there was a little homeless encampment in front of the <laughs> apartment complex. Right. And, and there were a group of cars that couldn't get out because people's stuff was blocking their driveway. Yeah. So they ended up having to call the police, wait for the police to roll out there, which took over an hour for them to get out there, and then had them, you know, so right. my sister was two hours late to work because of the yeah. homeless encampment in front of her house in Portland. That's that's the other interesting thing, too, is there's no, I don't know if infrastructure is the right word for it. There's no, who else do you call Yeah, except people with the law and guns? And that's how you yeah. end up with yeah. people getting, hey, can you come out? Can you call the cops? It's like, to me in my head, and I'm very much pro law enforcement and pro military, the whole thing, like whatever. But that's like when you send Marines to do peacekeep missions. Like <laughs> yeah. it, it just doesn't make sense in my head. Like you shouldn't be calling cops, but who else do you call? Yeah. But then you have a mentally ill, possibly drug addicted combative. Now the cops are placed in a situation. They don't care if, if they're on drugs or mentally ill, their lives in danger. Now you have a dead homeless person because they were blocking your driveway. There has to be something better. And, and, and then what the cops do a lot of times is they'll pay, place them on a 5150 hold. Yeah. A 72-hour psychiatric hold. Yeah. And then we end up dealing with them. We have the 5150 contract for Riverside County. We transport them to the evaluation center. And sometimes within hours, they look at them and go, you know, there's nothing we can do for this guy. And they kick him loose. Yeah. And the county pays for a taxi back to Hemet. Or they, you know, they take a bus, they get a bus token, and they get a bus back to Hemet. And 
you know, half a day later, we see him again, you know, doing yeah. the same thing. Because yeah. they because ha- law enforcement doesn't have the resources to deal with them, you know. And maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they're not the right people to, to be <clears throat> the ones intervening. Yeah. But, so, I think I just have one more question. Because we are uh, 90 minutes in. Yeah, if you can believe how this is how quick podcasting is. Like (laughs) that's why when me and Mike would start having guests and we would send them like ten questions, you realize you get through like maybe three or four. (laughs) Yeah, you're like we don't have five hours to talk about this, you know. (laughs) But I, I think the last thing is for yourself and people who maybe want to be any sort of anyone who deals with the public. How do you get joy? Because you you laugh a lot. Like, we have a lot. You have discussions with me and other people, and it's just always, like, a good time. Yeah. And it's always laughter, and it's always... Yeah. How does that, how does that be a reality? How, how can that be for people? Well, the, the one thing that I do is, you know, I, I try to find the good that comes out of... The good that comes out of things. And I'm... And I'm compassionate towards a lot of people that don't receive compassion from other people. I remember in the middle of the, uh, in the early 90s, uh, during the AIDS uh, epidemic, uh, my uncle uh, ended up dying 25 years ago from the AIDS virus. And uh, so I got this compassion for, for AIDS patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years after he had died, we went on a patient uh, in a mobile home park that was staying with his mother who, who he was dying. And uh, the fire department came out and they were pissed because they had gone out there. They'd gone out there a few times. And so uh, I get there and they're standing at the door. They won't even go in the house. Because they right? know the patient history? Is yeah, that why? Because they know he has AIDS and okay. you know, God forbid if we touch the patient, we're gonna get it. And so I kind of walked in the door and I walked by him. I go, you know, you you guys can go. We're fine. <laughs> and the, the mom's looking at me like, Oh my god, you came in the house? You know, and I So they, so they had there. an experience as a family of oh, yeah. not actually getting treated for the things. Oh that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I walk in, sit down next to this guy and you know, I'm talking to him, and uh, mom's just having a hard time dealing with him. Um, and I, you know, I said, who's his doctor? Let's, you know, work on a solution so we don't have to keep coming out here. Yeah. What, what, were, what were the calls? Like, I, I don't recall. It's been a long time, but, you know, it was... Was it medical-related or yeah, psychiatric? Yeah, no, no, no. It was, it was medically related. Oh, okay. Um, you know, he had gone blind uh, because of the disease and stuff. And so uh, he had, yeah, he had a bunch of, you know, medical problems that were going on, and the disease was progressing and stuff. And I said, well, you know, Mom, let's call the doctor. And see if we can get some resources out here to help you guys. And she's like, what What do you mean, call the doctor? And I go, call the doctor and ask him to have a nurse come out to your house and help you with your son on a regular basis. We can do that? I said, yes, ma'am. I go, because what's the other alternative, ma'am? 
Yeah. We take your hus- we take your son to the hospital. He's admitted for several days. I go, what do you think the insurance company wants to do? Do they want to pay for an inpatient visit for several days? Or do they want to pay for a nurse that comes out here and takes care of your son? She goes, my God, you're so nice. Why are you so nice? And I told her, I said, well, my uncle died a couple of years ago of the AIDS virus. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm touching both of them while I'm t- talking, you know, and even my partner's going, what are you touching them for? And I'm going, <laughs> right. well, first of all, dumbass, I have a pair of gloves on. <laughs> but, you know, second of all, even if I didn't have gloves on, I'd touch them because, yeah. you know, human contact's important sure. to show compassion to people, you know, and people just don't. You know, the generation nowadays, they just don't see that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I totally forgot what your question was. <laughs> I do that all the time. It's, I was asking, how do you, how do you find joy? Yeah. Just in life in um, general. You know, again, taking, taking out the positive, you know, uh, finding the positive and stuff, uh, having, is there always having positive? my faith? I managed to find some. Okay. I mean, you know, I found some on, on the freeway after that girl died. Sure. You know, the the simple thing of the four-year-old going, my sister's an, an angel now, you know. Uh, tw- 25 years later, I still remember that. Yeah. Still remember that comment. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, going to church all the time, you know. Uh, I love going to church. You know, I love all of my church friends. I have friends that I grew up with at St. Luke uh, that I've known for over 50 years. Uh, Father Michael LaFoon, Frank Gorey, Mark Ellis, Barbara Scholl, uh, Regina Ashey, Rome. Um, yeah. I've, I've known them for over 50 years. Um, you know, my closest friends are, are Orthodox, um, and they know what I do. And, you know, Dr. Rome, I bounce stuff off of him all the time, and he does too. Yeah, um, yeah, but you manage to find, you know, the positive things out of out of life. You know, my grandkids bring lots of joy, and my own kids, you know, mm-hmm. bring joy to my life. My wife brings joy to my life. Um, Your wife is really funny, by the way. Yeah, she gets that from me <laughs> after living with my six sense of humor for years. Uh, I'm, yeah, and she she had a long time adjusting to. To living, but she also, you know, her and the kids both know when I came home and walked into the bedroom and laid on the bed for 20 minutes, they kind of said, Okay, dad had a bad night, or you know, yeah, he was up all night long, or you know, something like that, yeah. But, uh, you know, they learned, and you know, she learns, and she knows, you know, when I call in the middle of a shift that I'm bouncing stuff off of her, you know, that I've had a bad shift. You know, because mm-hmm. normally, <clears throat> normally I'm so busy, I don't have time to call. You know, uh, she likes when I call in the evening, but she likes to go to bed early now. Um, so a lot of times I don't call her. But, um, you know, and spending time with uh, IOCC helping other people, you know, uh, I, I get I would a love lot to have of, someone from IOCC on. Get a lot of satisfaction. Um, I yeah. can, we, we can talk about that. I can talk about well, my, I know you're a guy too. trips, but yeah. Um, yeah. I or can, we can reschedule because I think the, the volunteering of, of resources and time. Yeah. It, basically it's, 
you're dealing with disasters too. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's you know, really and, awesome. and, and changing roles through IOCC, you know, and doing different stuff with IOCC, but taking the experience that I have, that's how I became a, a frontliner with IOCC is my experiences. Yeah. As a paramedic, you know, in dealing with families, you know, the guy that recruited me um, through volunteering with IOCC kind of said, you know, you'd be great for this team. And uh, so, you know, again, you know, sometimes it's stressful and sometimes we have a blast uh, hanging out with the, with a bunch of priests. We go to annual training into uh, Chicago and Denver and hopefully this year we're going to go to Houston, change it up a little bit. But hanging out with those guys are, you know, a, a great joy in my life and sharing stories with them. Yeah. Um, Who you know, they also that. are dealing with <clears throat> the same things, but maybe towards the end of it, right? Or do yeah, they deal dealing with, dealing with you know the, technically they're they're first responders too. When we go into disasters and they're dealing with family members, yeah, you know, um, that's that's part of the job being a first responder. Yeah, yeah, you know, but um, yeah, I I manage to you know, find the happiness, you know, it affects me, you know, once in a while I get kind of bummed out and I have tendency to step away. I know when I'm, when I'm being affected, I start having creepy dreams, mm-hmm. you know, getting up in the middle of it or having my dream of, uh, you know, I get a call and I can't find the keys to the ambulance and then I find the keys to the ambulance and then I can't find the ambulance <laughs> or I get in the ambulance, get halfway to the call and my pants aren't on. Um, that, that's when I, okay, I need a couple days off. Right. Right. Need need some days off to chill. Yeah. Me me and Jack, me and Jack Daniels (laughs) become better friends, but, uh, no, no, I don't encourage people to drink. Uh, but you know, that's, yeah. Yeah. I, I, and, and over the years, you know, I've learned the little signs of, of that type of stuff, you know, but you know, you, you have to find the joy of, of anything that you do. In, in your life, whether it's, you know, um, you know, and I, and I look at Dr. Rome who, who's an intensivist at St. Joseph's and that's all he deals with is these people that are literally dying every day and then dealing with the family and the family's just looking for a glimmer of hope. And sometimes he just can't give it to them because yeah. they're, they're at the end of their life. You know, these people have had strokes or heart attacks or, you know, breathing problems and stuff, and he just can't help them. You know, their their body's too far damaged and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he, <laughs> you know. Yeah, he's, I, I really like that guy a lot, too. I like yeah. that whole family, actually. Yeah. They've all been nothing yeah. but sweethearts to me yeah. since I've been here. Yeah. Which is actually the case with everyone. I've all, I, I feel like I've been very fortunate. Wherever I go, I seem to, to find the people that I need to find. Yeah. Especially though, um, at, in in orthodoxy, which is, I didn't know what I was walking into. Yeah, I literally walked in off the street. But um, <laughs> so, what, what do you just just in case there's anyone interested in in the field, whether they start here and become a firefighter, start here, become a nurse, become a doctor, maybe start here, get into law enforcement, whatever the their path may be. Do you have any any words for future EMS? Um, yeah, just enjoy what you do. Um, you know, there's 
there's all kinds of different directions to go. I, I've told, we had a class that, uh, at Mount San Central College um, exploring uh, healthcare careers. And so the, the teacher uh, for that class would bring in people, doctors, PAs, nurses, paramedics, EMTs, you know, and have them talk to the people. And uh, one of the things that I tell people is, if you're not sure if you want to get into the medical field, become an EMT. Um, you don't necessarily have to work in a, uh, an ambulance, but you can work in the emergency room and see if you can handle it. Mm. A lot of people can't handle the smells and the sights that they see in dealing with family members. Yeah. You know, you've invested six months, you know, and then and then you get hired and you look at it and go, okay, yeah, this isn't for me, as opposed to going into the medical field and going to medical school for 10 years and getting into it and going, well, I picked the wrong career. Yeah. You know, after 10 years <laughs> and $250,000, right, what right. should I do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just, and, and then, you know, there's other, other venues to go into, going into nursing, you know, if you get burned out in one place, go work in another place. You know, there's mm. so many different, and, you know, being a PA nowadays is huge for paramedics. Um, yeah. One of the guys that helped develop uh, a program that's no longer in existence, uh, but he developed a couple of programs in uh, Chicago area, PA programs in Chicago area. He said his best paramedics were former or his best PAs were former paramedics. Yeah. Who made decisions on their own and didn't have to sit there and wait, you know, for somebody else's second opinion or any of that crap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the paramedics, I mean, that's what we do every day. We make decisions, you know, and people do how do you make that decision? You know, my education, my my experience and stuff, what works, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's the most simple thing that ends up working, you know. Um, Going back uh, to your to your base level training seems yeah. to be common oh, yeah. amongst all fields. Yeah. Even music, yeah. education, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just, you know, find the joy in what you do and, you know, find the satisfaction of being able to help people. You may not... You know, let me share a story that I had. I first became a paramedic and uh, went to a, uh, a young man's house. He was 41 years old, and he had been having chest pain. His chest pain had gone away. The fire department had given him oxygen. Uh, he had a wife that was uh, 35 or something like that, and uh, they had a couple of young kids. I think they were seven and eight years old. And he had had an episode of chest pain. The chest pain was gone. And so I'm talking to the guy, and he was going to sign AMA and not go. Mm -hmm. And so I'm talking to him, saying, you know, go see your doctor, you know, covering my bases. And he touches his chest again, and he rubbed his chest. And I go, are you having chest pain again? He goes, yeah, maybe it's coming back. And I looked over at the monitor, and I saw the EKG changes on it. And I'm going, okay, I didn't see those before. So I recorded those. We had an old monitor back then. Recorded that and went, okay, let's go to the hospital. 
okay. So, <clears throat> again, I gave him the oxygen and treated him, got him to the hospital, showed the doctor. By then, the EKG changes had gone back to normal, which normally doesn't happen. When you're having an MI, those changes stay there. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, we're there for about five or ten minutes, and the guy has a seizure, goes into cardiac arrest. We do CPR on the guy. We get him back. So if you're having an MI or a heart attack, does that mean you are actively dying in that moment? Your heart is. Your heart muscle is because it's the oxygen is blocked off to your heart muscle. So that you do CPR when someone has a heart attack, period. When, when, they, when their heart stops is when you do CPR. Okay. Not when they're having a heart attack. After. Yeah, when, when their heart stops. And so he had some rhythm changes. He went into full arrest. We got him back. They brought his wife in. He lived for another 15 minutes. He went into full arrest, and he died. 41 years old. Ooh. And so I had left to go run another call. It was in the middle of the night. I came back, and they were still working him when I left. Came back. Well, they had pronounced him dead, 41 years old. And his wife saw me, and she came up, and she gave me a big hug. She goes, thank you. Yeah. And I I really wanted to go, for what? For what? Your husband's dead. Yeah. And, and I think my hesitation of not saying anything, and she goes, she, she looks at me and she goes, well, number one, if he would have died, he would have died at home, probably in his sleep. Number two, it would have been in front of the kids. Mm-hmm. Number, right. number three is you gave us those last 10 or 15 minutes to where we told each other we loved each other huh. and that we cared for each other, and then he died. She goes, that 10 minutes were the best 10 minutes that we ever had in our lives, Yeah, of our married lives. And I'm like, okay, you need to stop talking now because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start uh, break down leaking, time. I'm going to start <laughs> leaking from my eyeballs. Yeah, I'm about and, to now. And so I'm like, uh, okay. So I, you know, and that's one of the positive things. And I'm just like, turns out, I talked to the doctor a few days later, his dad died at the age of 35 of a massive heart attack. His brother was 36 when he died. He was 41. So he, he went past. They they had that congenital heart problem. Yeah. That was just a killer. And nothing nothing that they did was could prevent that. You know, so he uh, lived five years, six years longer than his brother and his dad. Yeah. You know, and it's just like and I kinda went, God, he never said a word about that. And I'm sure he wasn't even thinking about it, but you know. Right. Right. But yeah, you know. <clears throat> And just little simple things like that, you know, of, of you know, this 41-year-old that died, but his wife said, thanks for that 10 minutes. That 10 minutes made a difference to us. Yeah, you sure. Know? And I'm just like, okie dokies, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's that's pretty awesome. And the the I don't even know what to think about that because all of my experiences with death outside of uh, the church have been not there was almost no positive you could draw from yeah. it. It was oh, just yeah. like bad situations. Yeah. But now that I reflect on the situations I have had, there probably was still some good to have come out of it. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. 
but so I I think uh, just as a close a closing remark, I think it's important that educate yourself would be my thought, and it, it's been motivating yourself. I yeah. got I got my uh, bachelor's degree. I was thirty something years old. Thirty. Well, you went to the place you never wanted to do. <clears throat> yeah, thirty eight, and uh, got my master's degree uh, ten years ago, eleven years ago. That's yeah. awesome. And I'm sixty three, so you do the math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, yeah, you know, I knew I had to get my education. Um, you know. Yeah. So. Took me a while. <laughs> Duh. You're right. <laughs> and I still struggle with that too as I look at I'm not really enthusiastic about my professional life yeah. Uh, yeah. at all, actually. But I would say especially specific to what the topic we're dealing with at hand, I, I think it's a good thing to not depend on others to take action in situations. And, and I think it's been psychologically proven. The more people that are around in a situation, the less gets done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So don't be the one to wait don't on be a others. Spectator. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But, you know, be careful what you're doing. You know, don't jump out on the freeway and run across the damn freeway expecting, <laughs> expecting everyone to, you know, stop texting while they're driving. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, that's look. right. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, definitely, I would say, and this has been motivating for me too. Uh, the past couple of months, you know, with people we've been talking to on the show about go, it could be your hands. You don't know if you're going to be at a restaurant. Yeah, you never it, know, never. So go handle your business. Go be available, especially if you have kids. I think it's probably you probably encounter this a lot. People who have kids that have no clue what to do in an emergency when their kids yeah. come across yeah. something and. Don't be that person. <laughs> Definitely don't be the yeah. one who goes, what do I do? My kid just got stung by a bee. I've yeah. never experienced this before. Yeah. But uh, I appreciate you coming on, and I and I have a feeling you'll be coming back. And I apologize that we're kind of like bombarding our <laughs> our listeners with kind of like, you know, unfortunate things. You yeah. know, we have... The episode hasn't published yet, but we had a guest on that was a survivor of the the Vegas shooting. Yeah, and that episode is going to be super heavy, and I have some other heavy stuff. But, hey, this is my show. This is Mike's show. We do what we want. And (laughs) what's interesting to us is what gets published. And I I think um, first responders, EMS, I think all that is interesting because without you guys, we would we'd be falling out Chaos left and, and right pandemonium. <laughs> yeah so we appreciate you and thank you to everyone that's listening thank you um it's not live you might hear this whenever it is but it is martin luther king day we appreciate uh the time off the sacrifice of people before us and uh we hope you have a good day thank you bye bye yeah.